Sui. Uh, please do keep your Bible open um, at that passage. Oh, there we go. Can you hear me now? Just about. We're continuing on, or the, well, yeah, continuing on, and this is also the last uh, sermon in our series called Belong. Just looking at some of the key ways in which we belong to uh, Christ, and then uh, we belong to one another uh, in the church. Um, three key building blocks, so to speak, or three key aspects of how we live out the gospel and how God communicates uh, the gospel uh, to us together as um, his people. So uh, thinking this morning about the Lord's Supper, as you've heard, and uh, continuing on the Christmas theme, uh, Derek's already started. It's a bit early to be talking about Christmas dinner. Some people love it. Some think it's a bit boring. It's a bit of a, a bland meal. It's the same meal every year, same dry turkey, same horrible Brussels sprouts. I, 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 for one, love Christmas dinner, by the way. I don't know about you, I love Christmas dinner. It's quite a unique meal in our, in our yearly calendar, isn't it? It's a, it's a meal that we, most of us, look forward to and, and anticipate. It's a meal, isn't it, that, that brings people together. It's a meal that brings family together. And over the years, it's a meal that has many memories attached to it. Well, as Christians, we have a meal. We have a meal similar in many ways to Christmas dinner. In 1 Corinthians 11, we, we see this meal. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's no ordinary meal, though. It's kind of like Christmas dinner, but in, in many ways, it's nothing like it. It's a meal that's designed not to feed our bodies, but to feed our souls through the forgiveness and grace that's expressed in the meal. It's a meal that's designed to draw us not just closer to Jesus, it's a meal that's meant to tie us and bind us together as his body, the church. It's a meal, too, that is loaded with memories of the past, but that uniquely points forward to the future with certainty. And it's a meal that doesn't just feed us, so to speak, but that changes us, that shapes how we love and how we, how we live and how we look at our lives, both present and future. If you're a Christian this morning, the Lord's Supper is a meal given to you to remind you of what Jesus has done for you and of who you now are in Him and the future that He's bought for you. As a church, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. It's a church meal, a meal where we come together, where we commune with Christ, but we also commune with one another also serves to prompt us towards greater love for Jesus, but also greater love for one another. And it's also a meal that proclaims Jesus, that last verse that we read there. It's a meal that proclaims Jesus. If you aren't a Christian here this morning or you're just figuring that out, then the bread and the cup there are the good news about Jesus in 3D. They show you what he's done for you. They show us what's available to us. It's a meal that you and I can eternally benefit from if we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. So really, this morning is an invitation. This morning is an invitation to come to the Lord's Supper together to remember Jesus in a worthy manner. That's the invitation this morning. The invitation this morning is to come to the Lord's Supper together to remember Jesus in a worthy manner. First thing we see then in 1 Corinthians 11, at the Lord's Supper, we come together. 
seems that the church in Corinth, the, the Lord's Supper, as they were practicing it, uh, it seems that in Corinth, the Lord's Supper is becoming an experience that maybe perhaps reflects some of the experiences we've had around Christmas dinner. It's a meal of fighting, a meal of division, and of drunkenness. In verses 17 to 22, which we just read, we, we see the Apostle Paul really give them kind of, kind of quite a stern telling off here because they're not coming together in unity. If you look down at verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Basically, he's saying it, it would have been better off if you hadn't even gathered. You're worse off for having gathered in this way. Verse 21, for an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. In this context, the Lord's Supper would have likely been taken within the context of a kind of full sit-down meal. The key problem was that they were gathering and eating inconsiderately. They were selfish. It was just each of them was concerned for what they were eating on their own, their own meal. They were gathering in, in an excessive way. Some were getting drunk. The rich here were distancing themselves from the poor. They were allowing the way that the world separates class to filter its way into the church. It's so bad that Paul says in verse 20 that they might be using bread and wine. They might be using bread and wine. They might even be saying the words that Jesus said, like we do when we take the Lord's Supper. But he's basically saying, what you're doing resembles nothing like it. This is not the Lord's Supper. It's a disgrace, basically because they turned what is supposed to be a meal of humility into, verse 22, a meal of humiliation. They turned a meal of selflessness into a meal of selfishness. Meals are meant to bring us together. We're meant to consider one another at meals. As we try to teach our kids how to function around not just our own dinner table, but other people's dinner tables, it involves teaching them to do things like waiting for everyone and giving thanks before we eat, and teaching them to stay at the table until everyone's finished, which is, we're getting there. And we do this in restaurants too, don't we? We instinctively wait for one another until all the foods come, and there's something instinctive about gathering around the table and considering other people, isn't there? And of all meals, the Lord's Supper should be the place where we do that most, where we unite together more than any other meal. A number of key implications from this first section in verses. Firstly, the Lord's Supper is a meal for the church. If you look at verse 18, when you gather as a church, this is not a private meal. It's not a meal to be taken in privacy. It's a communal meal. It's not a table for one. It's a table for the church for the people you've committed to in a church. It's a table for those who are in Christ. So we take it together. A couple of times, three, two, three, four times in that section, come together, come together, come together. It's also a meal with a context. The context in which that meal should be taken is the local church. So bread and wine on its own has no real significance, but when we take it in this context, when it's accompanied by God's Word in the gathered church with worship and prayer and received by faith, those things take on great significance. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the church. The Lord's Supper forms the church. It's a meal that in and of itself forms who we are. We thought about this with baptism. 
marks of the church or baptism or preach, faithful preaching and the ordinances. How does the church formed? How is the church marked out? How is it identified? Faithful preaching along with baptism and the Lord's Supper is how it's marked out. We see that in the flow of Acts chapter 2. They hear the gospel, they repent, they believe, they're baptized, and then they break bread together. These are things which form the church. I've heard someone speak of it this way. Baptism is the front door. The Lord's Supper is the family meal. How do I know someone is a Christian? Part of that answer is they take the Lord's Supper in a local church. It's not the whole answer, obviously, but that's part of the answer. The Lord's Supper, along with baptism, form the church. And it's not just like baptism is an, is an initial one-off sign. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing means of identifying with Jesus and with one another. How do I know someone's still a Christian? Because they still gather with the church and take the Lord's Supper. We see the significance of eating together when it comes to church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. We touched on this a bit last week where they're commanded to not eat with someone who is unrepentant in sin. Why, why not eat with them? What's the significance of not eating with them? Well, not eating with them sig signifies that they can no longer call them brother because they're unrepentant in their sin. Yes, there's a longing that that would bring them back. But we see that that meal of itself has a hugely significant role in identifying us and shaping us and forming who we are. And it's not just that we take it which forms us. It's also how we take it. You think about the church in Corinth. Sometimes we read 1 Corinthians, by the way, don't we think that, man, that church was screwed up, just like us in many ways. Imagine what people both inside the church and outside the church would have thought as they walked in the door and saw them, not just taking the Lord's Supper, but how they took it. Are these guys even Christians? Is this a church? Because this is the same thing I see outside. So how we take it is just as important as the fact that we do take it and we are to take it in a united way. That's a third big implication here. The Lord's Supper reinforces the unity of the church. The Lord's Supper reinforces the fact that we are one body. If we're prone to forget that, that meal reminds us. It's a family meal. The family that eats together stays together, right? It's a meal which is meant to reinforce our unity. So don't neglect this meal. For the sake of your spiritual nourishment and also for the sake of the unity of the church. We see here then, and one thing that really I'm praying that we grasp here this morning is that the Lord's Supper is a significant vertical thing. It's about us and Christ, but there's a huge horizontal dimension to the Lord's Supper. This is a family meal. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, which is just over the page or back a page, Paul speaks to the Lord's Supper there too. He says that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's Jesus' body. It's Jesus that unites us together. In him we are one. In him we are one body. We thought about that last week. And the Lord's Supper, that one bread is a reminder of that unity. It's meant to reinforce it in our hearts and our minds. It's meant to express it to the world around us. The historic confessions of the church have also recognized that it, the, the Lord's Supper is both a bond and a pledge of our communion with Jesus, yes, but also of our communion with one another. They say that. 
Often we take the Lord's Supper in kind of quite an isolated way, don't we? We sit with our, it's not that this is wrong, there's a place for this. We sit with our eyes closed, kind of have our own personal time with the Lord. It's a good thing to do. It's not wrong to close your eyes and pray in that moment, by the way. But let me encourage us as we take the Lord's Supper together to also think about the people in the room, to look around, to look up and to look around, to consider who we're doing it with, to give thanks for one another, to to wait for one another, to share with one another. That's how we should act at the Lord's table. And you might think, well, the Lord's table is that kind of, yeah, we do that. I mean, how do we not do that? Well, really, the Lord's table is an expression of our everyday unity. A unity that we are to work for and express all the time, not just when we take this meal as we will do in a moment. So, we, yes, we come together around the table, but we've also come together today on a Sunday. So, therefore, we welcome one another. We wait for one another. We consider one another. We show no partiality to anyone in the room. We express humility to one another. How we express unity around the meal begins by how we express unity in the whole gathering, and that also filters into the whole week. We ensure no one is in need. We don't do what the Corinthians did. The rich make sure they're sorted and they forget about the poor. We make sure no one's in need in the church. We show regard for one another, honor and love. We're not embarrassed of one another. We reconcile and repent to one another, which we'll see emphasized in a moment. So in short, we come together not just physically, we come together as one body, as a family. We have regard for one another and we value one another. I just want to read a, a little section from a book by Tim Chester called Truth We Can Touch around the Lord's Supper and Baptism, which, I, which kind of speaks to this. Uh, I, I think it's worth quoting uh, kind of slightly at length with regards to how we, this, this meal is meant to bring us together. He says this, see the body of Christ represented by your local church formed by the shared experience of the body of Christ rec- represented by the one loaf. Look at each person receiving Christ in bread and wine. Maybe you wish there were different people in your church. Perhaps you wish more people like you would join. Perhaps you wish wish some awkward customers would leave. But the people around you are the people of Christ that he has chosen. And these are the people for whom he died. And here they are, sharing with you in his grace. In communion, we are reminded of our sin, and so our superiorities dissolve. At the same time, we see that our fellow Christians are saints bought with the blood of Christ. The price tag of their clothes is irrelevant once you've read the price tag of their lives, which is the precious blood of Christ. What the world thinks of them is eclipsed by what God thinks of them, and his welcome is symbolized in the bread and wine you see them receiving. They are children of God, and therefore they are our brothers and sisters. The family that eats together stays together. So the Lord's Supper is designed to bring us together, to bring the people in this room. So let's look around and give thanks for one another, wait for one another, and partake of it together. That's the first thing we see at the Lord's Supper. We come together. What do we do when when we come together? We come together to remember Jesus. If you look down at verses 23 to 26. So Paul now reminds the Corinthians, he reminds us what what the Lord's Supper is all about. Why does he choose here at this moment in time to remind them what the meal is all about? 
Because if they're going to start treating each other properly around the table, they need to be reminded of the forgiveness, love, and humility that the table represents. That's the antidote to their arrogance and humiliation. Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This meal is from the Lord himself. It's a gift from him. It's instituted by him. If you flick back chapter 10, verse 21, it's his table. Okay, we often call it that, don't we? The Lord's table, but do we realize the significance that that means? It means when we gather around this meal, we're gathering around his table. It's not our table, it's his table. It's his invitation to his meal. So they, we, mustn't profane it. We need to stop behaving contrary to what that table represents. We need to come and rejoice in it. And then in verses 23 to 25, he zeroes in on what the bread and the cup are all about. Some of us have been around the church for years. Uh, These verses just kind of are so familiar that they roll over us. Maybe some of us haven't been, and we're like, what on earth is this that Christians do? Here's what it's about. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul there texts the words of Jesus from the Last Supper. We see there that the bread, the bread represents the body of Christ, which was given for us. Represents Jesus giving up his body willingly and lovingly and sacrificially. It it represents how he stood in our place and took God's righteous wrath upon himself for us. He did that, notice, for you. He gave it up for us, for you, for me. That's why we give thanks at the table. We give thanks because he has given up his body for us. The bread represents his body. The the cup or the wine represents his, his blood. His blood which was necessarily poured out to purify our souls because as Hebrew 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what the blood represents. The blood represents that our sins can be washed away, that we can be made clean, that we can be made white as snow. And that the cup represents a new covenant Jesus is saying there the cup represents his blood which inaugurates or or purchases and opens up the benefits of the new covenant, of all the promises that God has made of the new covenant. The, The new covenant, the door is now open through his blood to enter into that covenant, that covenant of grace, a covenant promised way back in Jeremiah 31 should be up on the screen for you, Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one of them teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Look from the least to the greatest. 
That's the nature of the covenant. It's the nature of communion. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sin no more. And what's the main thing Jesus calls us to do at the Lord's Supper? Do this in remembrance of me. The church I grew up in, and maybe this is true of some of your churches, the communion table at the front had those words on the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do we need to remember? Why do we need to remember? Simple. We forget. We forget. And you might be thinking, I've not forgotten that Jesus died. Like, I know that he died, and I know that he was buried and rose again and ascended, and I know that he's coming back. Like, I've not forgotten those kind of historical facts. What about your heart, though? Did your heart remember Jesus when you were tempted with sin this past week? Did your heart remember Jesus when you vented your anger? Did your heart remember Jesus when you were anxious about something or fearful for the future? Did your heart remember Jesus when you were discouraged by suffering? Look at Corinth. They knew Jesus' death in, in their heads, but they'd clearly forgotten it in their hearts. See, the remembering he calls us to at the table is not just some kind of mental recall of something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's remembering in a way that reorientates our affections, that refuels our love for Jesus and for one another, and that reshapes our perspective and outlook on the future. It's a remembering that does something. You think about it, there's aspects of our life where that's true. We think of Remembrance Sunday. We, the, the, the motto, lest we forget. But it's not just remembering in a sense where we recall what happened in the past and the sacrifice of those who give their lives up for our freedom. It's a remembering that's supposed to shape us in the present and to shape how we would live in the future. And we feel that, don't we? We feel that it's not just recalling. We, we are moved by things like that. Or maybe it's how we look at photos of the past. Uh, this week, my dad sent us a message. The house we grew up in is now up for sale again. And there's all these photos of uh, the inside of the house. And so all our family were on WhatsApp just kind of reflecting on how the house had changed and the memories there. And you look at a family photo, you look at photos of the past, you're not just recalling a fact. You're being shaped in the present by memories. It stirs your affection. It makes you thankful. Maybe it makes you tearful. It made me think as I looked at those pictures of where home really is. It made me think about the future, about the new heavens and the new earth and our permanent home there. Deuteronomy 4 verse 9, where uh, it's likely that the phrase, lest you forget, comes from on Remembrance Sunday, says this. It makes that connection between head and heart. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to remember that in Jesus, God remembers our sin no more. We remember that in Jesus, there is strength and opportunity to resist temptation. It's not a losing battle. That in Jesus, we have rest from striving 
to earn God's love, that in Jesus we are now counted righteous and holy, that in Jesus our suffering is not wasted and that it one day end, that in Jesus we have someone who knows what it means to be sinned against, and when he returns he will bring back, he will bring about ultimate justice, that in Jesus we have a Savior who is changing us, will come back for us, will resurrect us, and will renew this world, that in Jesus we are one body and that we are to love one another the way he has loved us, that in Jesus we've been called to obey commands. And so in remembering, we renew our commitment to live wholeheartedly for him. That's what we remember. Jesus himself calls us to remember. It's a gracious thing, isn't it? Because if he didn't call us to do it, if he didn't give this gift to the church, we would so often just forget. He graciously calls us to remember him because he knows how often our faith is weak. That means that the call to remember around this table is a gracious gift because Jesus longs for our hearts to be drawn back to him and our faith to be strengthened. Maybe just a few things to kind of clarify um, in these verses. Um, Just in light of how the Lord's Supper has been understood historically, and even maybe now today in certain contexts uh, with respect to sacrifice and the presence of Christ. And you're thinking, why are you bringing this into the picture? Well, clarifications, not for the sake of kind of just getting some history um, into our heads, but clarifications for the sake of helping us to better understand what's going on here so that we might better value it in our hearts and in our lives. Firstly, it's often it's taught in certain contexts that Christ is essentially re-sacrificed or his sacrifices re-presented in the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church would teach that. That's not true. Hebrews 7, 27 says, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's done. It's finished. It just needs to be applied to our hearts and our lives. We don't have to have our sins re-forgiven, so to speak, or we don't need to have Christ re-sacrificed every week. It's done. The debt's paid. We sang that. We just have to continue to apply that and remember that in our hearts. The second thing that has been discussed and debated over the centuries is, is Christ physically present? When Jesus says the bread is his body, as he says in these verses, and the cup is his blood, how are we to understand that? Is he physically present through the bread and the wine? Here's my way of trying to condense this. Some say yes. Wrongly, like the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation, if you want to use the fancy term. Some say sort of, like the Lutheran tradition, they believe in consubstantiation. Some correctly say no, the bread and the wine do not actually literally become his body and blood. This is just a memorial. John 16, 28 tells us, Jesus himself, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is physically with the Father. He can't physically be here. Some say no, rightly, but that his presence is communicated in a special way around the table. This would be the Reformed tradition represented by the likes of John Calvin, the Puritans, and also the historical confessions of the faith, like the Westminster Confession and those that came from it. 
That view is based on 1 Corinthians 10, 16. If you flip back, and I am going somewhere with this, okay, hang in. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word participation there, the word behind that, koinonia, it means fellowship, and that's where we get the word communion from. That's where we get the word communion from. Jesus is physically with the Father. But something goes on at this table where we don't just remember Jesus from a distance. We eat with him. He is present at the table by his spirit. It's the Lord's table. That's what verse 21 in chapter 10 tells us. Thomas Cramer, the Anglican reformer, says this, physically Christ sits beside the Father, but spiritually he sits among his people. Physically he sits beside the Father, but spiritually he sits among his people. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ, isn't it? You might be thinking, yeah, but isn't he, isn't he spiritually present all the time? Like, doesn't he indwell me? Like, how is this any different? That's right, he is with us all the time. By his spirit, he, God is omniscient in this world. In what way is his presence specially communicated to us at the table? Well, it's the same way we might think about scripture reading or prayer. God is always with us by his spirit, yes. But in his word and in his and in prayer, he specially communicates with us and we with him in a way that, for instance, creation doesn't communicate. We know creation speaks of God and reveals him, but there is something special about his revealed word. It's scripture itself and places like 1 Corinthians 10, and as has been understood by the church through history, that God uses particular means to communicate his presence and his promises and all the benefits of Christ to us, especially preaching the ordinances and prayer. These are gifts through which he particularly communicates his presence and his grace to us. And we have a category for this already, because when we gather to worship, we talk about coming into the presence of God. There's a sense in which there's a particular occasion in which we experience God's presence. When we read Scripture, when we hear it proclaimed, when we pray to God, so too we should think of ourselves as getting close to Jesus in this meal. As we thought about with baptism, it's not that the water or the bread or the wine are intrinsically kind of magical or that they in and of themselves communicate Jesus. If I, later on this week, came around to your house and gave you bread and wine, it's it's not going to automatically communicate those things to you. But, Or when we evangelize people, we don't hand out bread and wine to them, do we? We give them the gospel message. We give them words. But in a certain context, context of the gathered church, worshiping God, accompanied by the word, received by faith, the Holy Spirit at work, then they do communicate something. They become deeply powerful and meaningful means by which Christ reminds us I'm with you. This is my table. I'm with you. I'm present with you in this life as you seek to walk with me. 
And I wonder if you've ever thought, why does he give us physical signs to remember that he's present with us? Why has he given us water and baptism and then bread and wine? As uh, Tim Chester said in his book, why does he say, do this in remembrance of me and not say this or think this? Why do we not just have a time where we say, okay, let's all recite the Lord's with us? Why do we not just have a time where we say, okay, silently, everyone, remember Jesus? Why does he give us these physical things? Because in the words of one confession, the Belgic Confession, which will be up on the screen, we believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has given us baptism in the Lord's Supper to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace towards us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. He knows our faith is often frail. He knows our faith is often weak. And in the Lord's Supper, in these physical things of bread and wine and of water, he accommodates himself to our weakness and reminds us in a very tangible way of his love and his promises to us. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says this, In the word we hear the Father's voice. In the ordinances we feel the Father's kiss. And then verse 26, if you look down, verse 26 reminds us in chapter 11 that one day we will physically eat with him. Spiritual now, by the presence of a spirit, well, one day we will sit round the table with him physically, face to face, in the new heavens and the new earth, and eat with him and commune with him fully. See that in Revelation 19. It's not just that we remember and look back in the Lord's Supper, but we also look forward. Verse 26 tells us that we have a hope, that we have a gospel to proclaim. So we proclaim something as a church, we proclaim something as Christians when we take this meal, and it points forward. Tom Schreiner, the commentator, the New Testament scholar, in his First Corinthians commentary, which is a very helpful commentary on First Corinthians, he says this with respect to proclaiming, the Lord's Supper communicates a story to the world. This meal tells a story, a story of sacrificial love in which Jesus gave up his life for the sake of others. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim that story to ourselves, but we also proclaim it to the world. So let's draw all this together. I know that was a, maybe that's a bit stretching. It's not bad to be stretched sometimes. Let's draw this all together. What do we do at the Lord's Supper? At the Lord's Supper, we look around. And others have phrased it this way uh, over time. So this, this kind of looking up, looking back is not original to me. At the Lord's Supper, we look around. It's a communal meal. It's designed to bring us together and to reinforce and express our unity. We also look up, as Jesus did in verse 24, we look up and give thanks to God for the bread that represents Jesus' body. We look back. We remember what Jesus has done for us and rest in who we now are in him. We look to Christ. 
we commune with him. We fellowship with him at this table. And we are reminded of his presence in our lives and his promises. We also look outward. We proclaim something at the table. We proclaim his death and we renew ourselves to walk in obedience to him. And we look forward. We look forward. We long for the future that this meal tells us and proclaims to us. We look forward. We, we long and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus' return in order to strengthen our faith, help us endure, and help us maintain a heavenly perspective. And we also, importantly, need to look in. Because we only proclaim the Lord's death until he comes when we don't behave like these guys did. They approached the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We have to do it differently. And that's the last thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at what it means to look in. At the Lord's Supper, we come together to remember Jesus in a worthy manner. Zoe didn't read these verses, so look down with me. And um, let's read them together. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body, body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world." The Lord's Supper is a meal for Christians who still sin. It's a table of grace. But let's make no mistake, this is not a table of cheap grace. Jesus invites sinners to his table, yes, but sinners who take their sin seriously. That's really the thrust of these verses. Don't approach this table Lightly, you are invited freely to come. This is a table of grace. This is a table for sinners. But it's a table for sinners who take their sins seriously. The Corinthians weren't doing that. They weren't taking their sins seriously. They were eating and drinking, as these verses tell us, without discerning the body. That is the body of the church. They weren't treating one another as one body. They were approaching the table hypocritically. They profaned it by their actions, and in doing so, they failed to proclaim the sacrifice it's meant to express. The consequence, verse 29, verse 29 tells us they drank judgment on themselves. It's a fearful thing. They drank judgment on themselves, and verse 30 to 32 tells us that that judgment was from the Lord. It was judgment in the form of fatherly discipline. It's important to note. He disciplined them because they were a riot. The illness that many were experiencing and that had even led to some dying was de designed, as these verses tell us, to wake them up to their sin before it was too late, to start taking sin seriously. He's saying it was better for them to experience hardship now rather than condemnation at the end. Maybe just a note to say here that if we are ill or have suffered in some way, these verses are not saying that we should automatically or immediately start speculating about what sin may have caused our suffering. There's a number of truths we need to draw in here that 
Firstly, that suffering, most suffering and illness is often just part and parcel of living in a fallen, sinful world. As Christians, God does not punish us for our sin any longer. He may discipline us, but He does not punish us. Christ took our punishment for us. Suffering and illness are also used by God to refine the faith even of the godliest of saints. God does at times discipline us in a loving and fatherly way, like he does here in Corinth. So we should see all hardship as an opportunity to examine our hearts and confess our sin, but that's something we're supposed to do all the time anyway. Those moments are meant to remind us that that's something we should do. Sometimes that discipline will be obvious. If we've gambled all our money away, our life is going to be hard. Kind of obvious why that's happened. If we get drunk and choose to get in the car and and then go and drive and get caught by the police and end up doing time for it, well, I'm pretty sure your own sins led you into that. But often it's not obvious and it's therefore not profitable or fruitful to try and pinpoint what particular sin has caused our hardship, but instead to just maintain a posture of humility and trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3 speaks to this discipline that he speaks about in Corinthians. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. So in light of all this, in light of the soberness of these verses, we are to examine ourselves. We're to examine our hearts and our lives as we approach the table. That means the table is a prompt, a regular prompt, to examine our hearts, to confess and repent before the Lord who's waiting to forgive us freely. It's also a reminder that approaching the table in an unrepentant manner is deeply serious. It's one of the reasons why we do what's called fencing the table. So if you hear myself or Derek say that this is a meal for Christians, we would not want you to do something that's not true of you. That's a protective thing. To approach this table in an unrepentant manner is a deeply serious thing. Particularly in view is approaching the Lord's Supper here in these verses in a manner where we have disregarded the unity of the church or where we have unreconciled conflict with a member in the body. That's the particular context of these verses. In places like Matthew 5, remind us of that. We thought about this in the Sermon on the Mount last year. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the Lord's Supper, here's one way we need to start thinking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a regular prompt in the life of the church for reconciliation to happen horizontally. It's also a gracious, regular prompt for us as individuals to regard to regards how seriously we're taking our sin, our sin. As we look at this table, we should think to ourselves, how seriously am I taking the sin in my life? So each time we approach the Lord's Supper, we should search our hearts in confession and repentance towards God and where necessary one another. But let me just say here, what's in view here is not an unhealthy introspection where every time we come to gather in this meal, you doubt your salvation. That's not what's intended. 
It's a table of grace. It's a table that reminds us that it's finished. We're trusting in Christ. It's a table we can participate in carefully. So we're not to overly introspect ourselves. We're not to doubt our salvation every time we gather around this table. We're to have a healthy, honest, humble assessment of our sin, flee from our sin, and flee to the table in repentance and faith. Flee to Christ who is at the table waiting to graciously forgive us. So, look in. Let's examine our hearts, our lives, our profession of faith, the sin in our hearts. Confess and repent to God and to one another. Look around ourselves. We come together. We do this together. It shapes us. It forms us. It prompts us towards greater unity. Look up. Give thanks to the Lord for giving Jesus to us and for us Look to Christ himself. Remember all that's now true of you in him. Remember all that he has purchased for you, all of his benefits. Look outward. Remember that this meal is something that says something. And therefore, the way in which we take it says something. And then look forward as we take this meal. Look forward to the return of Christ. Rejoice in that and let that shape your heart and your mind. Come to the Lord's Supper together to remember Jesus in a worthy manner. That's the invitation of these verses, and that's what we're going to do together now.